18 years ago now, I moved from Des Moines, Iowa to Sioux Falls, South Dakota to begin my seminary training. In my first week of classes there, I called the pastor of the Evangelical Free Church in Sioux Falls, Pastor Randy Anderson, and I asked if I could meet with him. He was glad to. He invited me out to lunch later that week, and, and beginning from that lunch that we had at Perkins on, 40, on 41st Street, Pastor Randy became a pastoral mentor for me and a good friend. And one of the disciplines that I learned from Randy was to always be in the Psalms in my daily Bible readings. Not to only read the Psalms in my daily Bible readings, but to, but to daily read the Psalms on top of whatever else I was reading in the Bible. And so for the past 18 years or so, that's been my practice. That's what I've been doing. This past Wednesday, when Joe Biden was inaugurated as our nation's 46th president, I heard from one of my good friends here in the congregation that the Lord had led him to read Psalms 1 and 2 on that Wednesday, and that those Psalms were a great encouragement to him, particularly in light of what had just taken place in our country. That made me think of something that I had heard about the Psalms, probably from Pastor Randy, I'm not certain about that, but probably from Randy, and so I texted that back to my friend. I said, the Psalms are a wonderful place for a believer to live. The world of the psalmist, that means the psalm writers, the world of the psalmist is a world where God reigns. And we need to remind ourselves daily that the world of the psalmist is the actual world that we live in. Despite what we, we, we may hear from the media, or government leaders, or anyone else. So that's why I have found great benefit in reading the Psalms every day. The Psalms reorient my life and help me to believe that the world that I live in, the world that we all live in, is a world where God reigns, a world where God is sovereign. Let's do the, the psalmist here in, in Psalm 135, verses 5 through 7. For I know, he says, that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps, he it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. So who is it that reigns over the weather patterns that we experience upon the earth? Who is it that reigns over all authorities on earth and in the heavenly places? It's the Lord God. Listen, listen to the psalmist again in, in the Psalm 2. Uh, the verses that were particularly encouraging to my friend this past week on inauguration. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, the psalm says. 
O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Just a couple of examples where we clearly see that the world of the psalmist is a world where God reigns. And that is the actual world that we live in. So we need to be reminded of that, brothers and sisters, especially when we see some hard things, like we have seen this past year. And like we will surely see in the days and weeks and years to come. So the psalm that we are in this morning, Psalm 60, shows us that even in a world where God reigns, still very hard things will fall upon God's people. And we might be tempted to interpret those hard things that we see wrongly. So the best place for us to be in the hard days and and any day is with God. That is, taking refuge in him by faith in his son, submitting ourselves under his rule. So our main theme from this psalm, Psalm 60, is this, that let us be sure that we are with God in the hard days to come. Let us be sure that we are with God in the hard days to come. Psalm 60 has a, has a long extended superscription that we're going to take a look at because it's very helpful for us here. But the heading I put over the superscription as well as verses 1 through 4 is that let us recognize God's sovereignty even over our suffering. Let us recognize God's sovereignty even over our suffering. Again, let's take a look at the superscription in those first four verses. To the choir master, according to Shushan Iduth, a miktam of David, for instruction, when he strove with Aram Naharaim and with Aram Zobah and when Joab, on his return, struck down the 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. O God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. O restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow. So this superscription here, that's the uh, uh, paragraph there that comes before verse 1. This tells us several things to help us understand this psalm, which on its own would be difficult for us to interpret. King David was uh, the author of this psalm. It's one of many that King David wrote. We also learn that that says it's a psalm he wrote for instruction or for teaching. That is, he wrote this to be put to music for the people of God to learn and sing in order to instruct them about God and their relationship with him as his people. He wanted to remind them, as I've said a few times already, that the world that they live in is a world where God reigns. So it also gives us the historical context of what was happening in the life of God's people at the time that David wrote this in response to what they were experiencing. It's a, it's a prayer to God. Psalm is a prayer to God and also falls 
into the category of a lament. That is, David put into words the grief as well as the hope of the people of God for some hard things that they had experienced. So the superscription gives us a brief summary of of one of the wars of Israel. It's like just a very brief news report, maybe like a headline that you would see across the screen of your television. Uh, It gives us the area where David was engaged in militarily, which was to the north of Israel, and then also a report of a different battle that took place in the south at about the same time. So Aram, we hear Aram here twice. Aram was also known as Syria. Naharim means two rivers. The two rivers would have been the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. It's also a word for Mesopotamia. And so this would have been modern-day Iraq. And then Arab Zoba would, would then be Syria of Zoba. That would have been the land just to the southwest of that area in Iraq, which is present-day Syria. So in 2 Samuel chapter 8 and 1 Chronicles 18, we read about the military campaigns in these areas by David and his armies. And when we learn that there are there at the same time, David's armies were, were, were then engaged in another battle in the south, Edom. The people of the southeast of Israel, they must have led a counterattack against Israel at about the same time that he was engaged up in Syria. So they either took advantage of the opportunity that David's armies were, were way up north and, and that, they were, that they were distracted, they were, they, were, they, were, they were way up there, so they were weak down south, so Israel's armies, uh, so uh, uh, they, they, they decided to attack then Israel, or quite possibly Syria was not doing so well up there in uh, defeating David, and so they made a deal with Edom to open up a second front in the battle, in this war, to divide David's army, to hopefully then gain the upper hand against him. So this would have been the newspaper report about what was going on. But then in the psalm, David provides us with what he perceived was really happening in verses 1 through 4. Now remember, the word where the world where, where, where the psalmist lives where David lived, is a world where God reigns. So, verses 1 through 4. O God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry, or restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you that they may flee to it from the bow. So it's hard not to notice the repetition there in those lines. As I read it, I, I purposely emphasized it to help you to hear it. That's, that's an easy practice for you to pick up when you're reading Scripture and you see something that's repeated. Emphasize it as you're reading it. You really get the point that way. Oh God, you have rejected us. You have broken our defenses. You have been angry. You have made your people see hard things. You have seven times in those verses. You have. The attack on Israel from the Edomites must have been a devastating attack. It it, it was most likely unexpected, probably brought on significant losses, 
And we must remember that when we read about David's victories in battle against the Edomites or the Syrians or, or even the Philistines in other places, these were real, live wars. Wars where the men fought with primitive weapons, bows and arrows, swords, clubs, spears, even rocks. And the only way to defend yourself against attack was to put your men in lines with swords and spears to stand in the way of the other men coming at you and at your cities and at your people with swords and spears and clubs and rocks. War was awful then, as it still is today. Just we have more technologically advanced ways of killing people. So David and the people of Israel must have suffered in these battles, suffered greatly. And David cries out God here. And we are to notice where he ultimately lays the responsibility for the destruction, for the devastation that they were experiencing. Oh God, he says, you have rejected us. You have broken our defenses. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. You have made your people see hard things. David is saying that ultimately, the suffering that they were experiencing was brought upon them by God. For God reigns in the world of the psalmist, which is the actual world that we live in. Even though we often don't think about it in that way. So why has God allowed this to happen? Why has God brought this devastation on his people? That's what we always want to know, isn't it? Why? As a pastor, I've been asked that question more than a few times in this past year. But what we've had to endure with COVID, with the social unrest, with the election. Pastor, what's God doing? Why is this happening? As if God had pulled me aside, you know, early on to explain everything. All right, here's, here's what's happening. This, this is the reason why. You know, don't worry. You know, that, that's not what he did. And notice, we are not given the answer here in this psalm either. God is not accountable to us. He is sovereign. He owes us no explanations. He never asks us for permission. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 115, verse 3. We are not given the reasons why the Lord made his people to see such hard things here. In fact, David is not even asking the question. He's not asking why. He is instead crying out to the Lord for mercy. And we'd be wise to learn from his example. The God that he knows is the God who reigns over the world. And he is, David knows, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It is the God who has made a covenant with his people, who has promised them that he will be with them to bless them. The one who will one day bring the Savior King into the world through them, through the people of Israel. So David calls out to the Lord for mercy. And he knows because the Lord is sovereign and because the Lord has made promises to his people, 
promises that, 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 that he will bring salvation through them, he knows that the Lord is surely able to save them. That's what we see then in verse 4 and 5. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow. A banner, Psalm what is, there's a, there's, a, there, there's a battle going on and people are retreating from the front lines and there's the banner that, that a soldier's waving, come here, come here, it's safe here. They run to that banner, fleeing from the destruction. Verse five, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. Secondly, in the next uh, section here, verses five through eight, let us remember the promises of God are far greater than the miseries of his people. Let us remember that the promises of God are far greater than the miseries of his people. Verses five through eight. That your beloved ones may be delivered, give salvation by your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness. With exultation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the vale of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph. There is a significant statement there in verse 5. Maybe you already noticed it. Probably the most significant statement of the entire psalm. It is how David refers to himself and his people there in verse 5 as your beloved ones. Your beloved ones. The Hebrew word for beloved here belongs in the language of love poetry. We find this word beloved used often in the Song of Solomon, which is a, a book of love poetry between a husband and a wife. Uh, the word appeals to, to the strongest of bonds in the most committed love relationships. Israel is the Lord's beloved. For he had redeemed them. He had, he had made them his people. He had committed himself to them. And then in the New Testament, one of the most common descriptions of the church used by Paul and the other apostles is the Lord's beloved. You are the Lord's beloved, Paul says to the churches. So if you have been born again by God's Spirit, you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. The Bible says you are his beloved. The Lord's beloved. But let's re remember, the same people who David refers to the Lord's beloved were also the ones whom David says in verse 1 that the Lord had rejected. O oh God, you have rejected us. Had the Lord really rejected his beloved ones? Well, that's what, definitely what it seemed like to David. Certainly that's, that, that, that's, that, that, that's what it felt like. I would imagine that it was very disheartening for David to say what he says in verse one. I would also imagine that there have been times in your life that you've maybe had a similar experience. You felt rejected by the Lord. You felt left alone. 
you experienced a great and devastating loss. You did not know how you'd be able to go on. And if you hadn't had such such an experience, the Psalms are trying to teach you that one day you will. One day the Lord will cause you to see and experience some very hard things. So what do the Lord's beloved ones do when they feel like God has rejected them? We see here they run to his promises. They run to his promises and they take shelter under them. Verse four and five again. You have set up a banner for those who fear you that they may flee to it from the bow that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. And the very next verse, verse six, the very next word that we hear is that God has spoken. God has spoken. David is referring back to God's word, to his promises. And the promises he is particularly looking back to in the circumstances uh, that he's in here were the promises God made to his people to give them the promised land. Shechem and Succoth here were areas of Israel along the banks of the Jordan River, Succoth on the east, Shechem on the west. David is remembering and proclaiming the promise of God that he is sovereign over these lands and he gave them to his people. He had promised them the land and he had given them the land. He's recalling them the then the promise that God made to Abraham and to Isaac and then to Jacob. Then in verse 7, the Lord goes on to name the tribes who inherited the lands in those areas around the Jordan. Gilead and Manasseh were also areas just east of the Jordan River, and this was part of the nation that the Edomites had invaded, so therefore it was the part of the nation that was under threat when David wrote this psalm, and David is recalling God's promise here. He is being strengthened by God's word. He is recalling that those lands, those lands don't belong to these tribes of God's people, and they certainly don't belong to Edom. Edom were the descendants of, of Esau, if you would recall that. No, no, these lands belong to God. They belong to the sovereign God who reigns over the world where we all live and only he has the authority to divide up those lands to whomever he pleases and he has promised in his word that these lands will belong to his people, the sons of Jacob. So friends, this this begs, begs the question for us. Do you know God's word well enough to run to his promises for protection when you have been troubled? when you have been made to see hard things in your life? Do you have promises that you can share with another believer when the Lord is leading them into a time of suffering and trial and you are coming alongside them, seeking to help them and encourage them in that time? What are you telling them? What are you saying to them? Where are you pointing them to? Remember, this is a psalm of instruction for us. We are being instructed here to know and turn to the promises that our covenant God has made with us in times when our faith is being challenged, when we have taken a direct hit. Will we remember 
that we have been justified by faith, and so then we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that through him, we have also obtained access by faith, that is faith in his promises, into this grace in which we stand, so that we will be able to rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Will you run to a promise like that in your day of challenge? Will we run to the promise that nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord When everything seems like God has left us, will we hold on to the truth of God's promise? Then in verse 8, God then mentions some of Israel's primary enemies who had caused much trouble for the Israelites and who were causing more trouble for them at this time. The Lord basically here mocks them, saying, Moab, Moab is my wash basin. A wash basin, of course, is a little tub used to wash your feet. So God is basically saying, here's what I think of Moab. Moab is a place where I wash all the dirt, dust, and dung off my feet. Then he says, upon Edom I cast my shoe. I like how the New Living Translation uh, translate that for us. I will wipe my feet on Edom. I will wipe my feet on on Edom. They remind God of, of, of a doormat, in other words. Then finally, over Philistia, I shout in triumph. The Philistines, Saul and David's major enemies, were soundly defeated by God, guaranteed here by his word. But we need to think about this. I mean, these are three nations. These are three great enemies that had inflicted much damage and loss of life against the Israelites. The Philistines were the ones who had conquered King Saul and had both he and his son Jonathan killed. They were the nation that Goliath came out of. So we're not to think that Israel should have taken these enemies lightly. If they ever did, they would pay a great cost. But the key message for us here is this. How do they compare with the Lord? How do they compare with the Lord? When we compare their strength to God's, they're like wash basins. They're like doormats to be, to be kicked around and trampled over. And that was what ended up happening to Edom. For Joab struck down 12,000 of them in the Valley of Salt by God's power, the superscription tells us. So our enemies might seem very big, And very threatening, and let's not kid ourselves, the church has its enemies today, but but how do they compare with the Lord? What has the Lord promised is going to come to all those who raise a hand in violence against his people? We may have to endure some hard things, but remember, the promises of God are always greater and whatever miseries we'll be called to endure. Lastly there, in verses 9 through 12, we see, let, we, uh, we will learn, uh, let us not lose heart in the day of hard things, but be sure we are with God. 
Let us not lose heart in the day of hard things, but let us be sure that we are with God. Verse 9, who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. David and his people were in a time of crisis. They had been attacked by Edom and were under threat of losing ground to them, probably much of the fertile land which they depended upon to feed their people there in southern Israel. And David's army was engaged in Syria in the north. Now they would have to divide the army and send men down to defend the nation against Edom in the south. They could encounter great losses on both fronts. So what does David do? Does he follow a similar scheme to Syria and and does he try to make a deal with another nation to maybe uh, attack Edom uh, on another border for him? We see in verse 11 that rather than looking for salvation in men, instead he turns to the Lord. Believing his promises, he cries out to the Lord, the same sovereign Lord whom whom, whom he believes ultimately brought this trouble on his people in the first place by his sovereign purposes. Listen to a, a translation of these same verses from another Old Testament scholar, which helped me a great deal to understand what's really going on here. Verse 9, who will conduct me into the fortified city? Who is ready to lead me into Edom? Is it not you, O God? You have have rejected us, and who are not, O God, going out with our armies? Give us help from the adversary, for human salvation is falsehood. With God, we will act valiantly. He it is who will trample on our adversary. So David is saying here, that even when it appears God is against them, he is still the only one whom they can look to for help. God is still the only one whom we can depend upon for deliverance. God brings trouble upon his people, but he is still the only one who can deliver them. Other times God brings the trouble so that his people would run to him, that they would return to him, they would recognize their great need to be with him. This is what we see in the New Testament regarding how God leads people to a knowledge of his saving grace. When when sinners hear the truth of their sin, that they stand condemned before Almighty God, they can come under heavy conviction of sin. They They can come under heavy fear of judgment they can feel incredible shame. In Acts 2, this this happens to the people of Jerusalem who demanded that Jesus be crucified, and even to some of the priests and religious leaders who opposed Jesus and sought to have him crucified. Acts 2 tells us, after hearing God's word spoke through Peter, that they were cut to the the heart and said, said to Peter, And the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They're cut to the heart and they say, brothers, what shall we do? The Lord brought upon them such a sense of their guilt before God that they feared for their lives. They knew they deserved God's condemnation and wrath in hell for what they had done. They were afraid. 
And what does Peter tell them to do? He tells them, go to the one whom you fear. Go to the one whom you know is your judge. Go to the one whom you crucified. For he will deliver you. He will save you. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The same one who brings trouble upon our souls is the only one who will deliver us from that trouble. So the key to the psalm and to the troubles of our lives is that we must be sure that we are with God. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. This is a lesson that the psalm is seeking to teach us. With God we shall do valiantly. With God. Without God, we cannot expect much of anything. But with God, we shall do valiantly. Without God, our enemies will overcome us quite easily. Our fears, our doubts, our temptations will overcome us quite easily. But with God, he will tread down our foes. Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. With God, communities are transformed. With God, lives are saved. With God, families who are so broken, so dysfunctional, will find hope and transformation. With God, people like you and me, who were dead in our sins, are born again, are given spiritual life. All this can happen if God is with us and if we are with God. But how can we be sure we are with God? From the psalm we learn that one way we can be sure that we are with God is how we respond to his word. Do we believe his promises? Have we taken refuge from the condemnation and judgment that our sin and rebellion has brought on us by trusting in the message of his gospel? That though we are sinners, out of his great love and mercy, God sent his own son to fulfill all the righteousness that we lacked and laid down his life on the cross for sinful men and women like us. And on that cross, he suffered the wrath and condemnation that our sins deserve. Do you believe that he died for you and that he rose again from the dead and lives today calling out to us to come, to come to him, to come to him and be saved by faith and trust in him for our salvation. When we are troubled, do we run to his promise of salvation for us? Do we trust in his gospel promises so much that we also offer his saving words to others as well? So friends, we, we know that we are with God if we live by his words. His words tell us that we live in a world where he reigns, a world which is heading towards a day of judgment where we will all stand before him. That will be a day uh, where his wrath will be poured out on sinners. Many will see hard things on that day. But let's remember verses four and five. God has set up a banner for all those who fear him, that is, for all who take his word seriously, 
and repent of their sin and flee from the wrath to come, taking refuge in his Son. Through Christ, God's beloved ones will be delivered and will be forever saved. So be sure, my friends, be sure that you are with God on that day. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray that you would help each of us to have the confidence and the assurance that we are with you through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to trust in your promises. Help us to know your promises, to have promises in our hearts that we can run to when we are afraid, when things are not going well. And Lord, help us to encourage one another also by pointing them to the same promises in your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray.